Well, I'm very thankful today to uh, welcome Professor Chris Ansbury. He and his wife, Carolyn, are good friends uh, of the congregation. So Chris and Carolyn, thank you so much for uh, the time uh, you've set aside to come be with us. Uh, so Chris is a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. So if you're at that stage of life and you've got a young one and you're like, where can I you know, send him to college? What's a responsible fact? Grove City would be an excellent choice. Um, just uh, wonderful what they're doing there. And uh, before uh, Chris was at Grove City, he spent many years at Oak Hill Theological College in London, which is the key training ground for young evangelical ministers in all the UK. So that's really why we invited him, because though he's American, he's, he's as close to an Englishman as I can find. And uh, I knew when he, uh, you know, I was giving him instructions earlier, and he said, well, where's the loo? I said, oh, yes, okay, I had to, had to go back. But no, we're, we're in very able hands this morning. And uh, he, he is a, a scholar insofar as he's got a number of uh, commentaries coming out next summer on, on wisdom and the Psalms. He's done a lot of work in Old Testament. Uh, but while um, he's not doing scholar, well, he, he does scholarship, but he does it for the church. So if you know the term scholar pastor, I, I see Chris very much in that lens that he's doing high level scholarship in the university, but does it with an aim for God's people and from uh, doing it uh, within God's people. So. Uh, I already heard it, I need to hear it again. I loved it, and we're very much looking forward to it, brother. That said, if you'd please stand, and I will do the reading. This will be Luke chapter 19, from verse 11. So Luke 19 and verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit and reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. 
Thank you for honoring God's word. You may be uh, seated, and Dr. Ansbury, if you would. Good morning. If you have um, a Bible or a device, I invite you to keep it open to Luke chapter 19. And before we look at this parable together, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please speak to us in your Son, by your Spirit, through your Word. Your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. In addition to death and taxes, I've come to terms with another inevitable reality of life, the reality of evaluation. We're all evaluated. Let's be honest. You're evaluating me right now. Evaluation is inescapable. Think about it. If you're a student, you are evaluated. You receive grades that assess how you've performed in the classroom and your knowledge of a particular subject. If you have a job, you are evaluated. You receive some sort of annual appraisal evaluating what you've done well, how you might improve, and your prospects for promotion. I'm a teacher. I receive an annual evaluation from both my department chair and my college dean. And I'm also evaluated by 18 to 21-year-old kids for every single class that I teach. I'm even evaluated as a parent. I receive unsolicited evaluations from my kids all the time. <laughs> Take a guess as to the most recent and recurring evaluation from my kids. I'm no fun. <laughs> I'm no fun? Can you imagine that? Evaluation is inevitable in life. And evaluation is inevitable in the Christian life. Why? Because we are accountable. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, a kid or an adult, a student or a worker, single or married, the reality is that we are accountable to someone. And because we're accountable to someone, we will be evaluated. I wonder, how would you evaluate yourself this morning? If you're a Christian, how would you evaluate your walk with the Lord Jesus? How would you assess the state of your discipleship? And if you're not a Christian, how would you evaluate your life? What standard would you use to evaluate yourself? The parable in Luke chapter 19 acknowledges that evaluation is inevitable. No one is excluded from evaluation in this parable. You see, the parable tells the tale of a nobleman, servants, and citizens. The nobleman, the servants, and the citizens represent real people. The nobleman represents Jesus, who rules over a kingdom and goes away to receive the crown of kingship before returning to consummate his kingdom. The servants represent Jesus' disciples. They are his servants entrusted with the gift of the gospel that they are to put to work 
while the king is away. And the citizens represent the noblemen's enemies, Jesus's opponents, who staged their own version of January 6th. They do not want the noblemen. They do not want the king to reign over them. They reject his kingship and seek to prevent his coronation as king. Jesus writes all of us into this parable. We are part of this story. We are either Jesus' servants, his disciples, or we are the citizens, those opposed to Jesus. Whether we're the servants of the king or the citizens of the kingdom, we live between the times, between the departure and coronation of Jesus as king and his return to establish his kingdom in its fullness. And what we do between the times, how we live in the meantime, matters. Why? Because we will be evaluated. We will have to give an account to the king for our service or for our opposition. Who are you in this parable? Are you a servant of the king, a disciple of the Lord Jesus? Or are you a citizen, an enemy of the king? The story told in the parable of the ten minas is cast in the context of a much bigger story in Luke's gospel. And this bigger story includes Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, and the matter of discipleship. Luke sets the stage for the parable of the ten minas in chapter 19, verse 11. And this verse is critical. Jesus' disciples, the crowd, and Jesus' opponents have just witnessed his scandalous grace to Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector and extortioner, turned disciple of Jesus and son of Abraham. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. Jesus has the disciples, the crowds, and his opponents' attention. He's near to Jerusalem, the place to which Jesus has set his face since chapter 9, verse 51. The fulfillment of Jesus' mission is imminent. And before Jesus steps foot in Jerusalem, he tells this parable. Why? Verse 11 because the people supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The people assumed that Jesus' kingship and Jesus' kingdom were comparable to earthly kings and earthly kingdoms. They expected Jesus to enter Jerusalem, overturn Roman rule, establish his reign in power, and consummate his kingdom. But they're wrong. Their expectations are misguided. Now, Jesus will enter Jerusalem to the shout, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Before Pilate, the religious leaders will claim that Jesus has identified himself as a king. Pilate will ask Jesus, 
whether he is the king of the Jews. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the soldiers will mock him, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the sign over Jesus' cross will read, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king. He enters Jerusalem as the climax of his coronation as king. But his kingship and his kingdom are not what the people expect. Jesus receives the crown and kingship by laying down his life, not by exerting military or political power. And Jesus receives the crown and kingship by saving others, not by saving himself. Jesus is not the king the people suppose. And his kingdom is not the kingdom the people expect. Jesus enters Jerusalem to fulfill his mission of saving the lost. His kingdom is already here. It's already present. The people assume that the fulfillment of Jesus' mission, that Jesus' coronation as king, will usher in a consummate kingdom under his rule. But they're wrong. Jesus corrects the people's misunderstanding of his kingship and his kingdom. And he offers this correction through the parable of the ten minas. In effect, Jesus says this, Jerusalem will be the place where I fulfill my mission. But Jerusalem will not be the place where I consummate my kingdom. Jerusalem will be the place where I fulfill my mission. But Jerusalem will not be the place where I consummate my kingdom. The parable of the ten minas separates Jesus' departure and coronation as king from his return to establish his kingdom in its fullness. As the nobleman, Jesus goes away to a far country, to a distant country, to receive the crown and the kingdom before returning. This period between Jesus' departure and his return to consummate his kingdom raises a question. How do we live in the meantime? What do we do in the absence of the king? The parable answers these questions. At its heart, it's a parable on discipleship. Jesus is concerned that we understand the life of discipleship across Luke's gospel. He spells out the cost of discipleship. He calls the rich ruler to a life of discipleship, a life of discipleship that that rich ruler rejects. The blind man at the end of Luke chapter 18 receives his sight and enters into a life of discipleship following the Lord Jesus. And Zacchaeus? Well, he embodies the costly nature of repentance and genuine discipleship. Discipleship matters. So Jesus tells a parable of how his disciples live between the times, 
between his departure and coronation as king and his return to consummate his kingdom. Now, the plot of this parable is straightforward. The nobleman departs to a distant country to receive a crown and a kingdom. Before he departs, he calls ten of his servants and entrusts each with a mina. What are they to do with this mina? Engage in business until the nobleman turned king returns. Now, friends, we need to recognize that this parable is very, very different from the parable of the talents told in Matthew's gospel. Jesus, the nobleman, gives his disciples, gives his servants the same gift. Each receives a mina. Each receives the gift of the gospel. These servants are not given different amounts in the light of their different gifts or different capacities. Each is given the same gift. This is bog standard, ordinary discipleship. It's not extraordinary. No extraordinary gifts are required. And this is signaled through the minas. A mina is worth a few months' wages. It's not a talent, which was worth about 20 years' wages. This is an ordinary gift given to ordinary disciples for an ordinary task, namely the task of faithful gospel discipleship in the king's absence. And faithful discipleship is described in terms of engaging in business with the gift given by the king. Now, the task implies that the servants will have to give an account to the king. When he returns, they will be evaluated for the way in which they've engaged in business. But notice what's missing from the servants' task. The nobleman does not require his servants to deliver a specific profit or secure a particular dividend. All he requires, all he requires, is that his disciples use the gift to engage in business. Put the gift of the gospel to work, says the nobleman. That's what Jesus' disciples are called to do during his absence. Put the ordinary gift of the gospel to work in faithful discipleship. The work is the issue, not the profit, not the results. This work of discipleship is made much more difficult in light of the context in which the nobleman's servants find themselves. We learn in verse 14 that when the nobleman departs to receive the crown and a kingdom, the citizens stage a protest and send a delegation after him. They don't want the nobleman to be king. They reject his reign. This is the climate in which the nobleman's servants put their master's gift to work. And this is the climate in which Christians put the gift of the gospel to work. In a world that hates Jesus, in a world that rejects Jesus' reign, and in a world, by implication, 
that rejects the work of his servants. It's not an ideal working environment. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, this is the environment in which you're called to put your master's gift to work. This is the context in which discipleship is tested. In a world in which Jesus' disciples demonstrate whether they are faithful to their master in putting the gift of the gospel to work, or they compromise their calling through unfaithfulness to their task. It's an ordinary task in difficult circumstances. And we've seen this across the last year, have we not? Does it strike you that among the cases heard by the Supreme Court in this last year, in this last session, two involved matters of ordinary discipleship? A high school coach who prayed after football games and a postal worker who didn't want to deliver your or my Amazon package on a Sunday, but rather attend his local church. This is not extraordinary, folks. These are ordinary acts of faithful discipleship. Prayer, meeting with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. And these are cases in which citizens opposed to Jesus oppose Jesus' disciples. Faithful discipleship in these difficult circumstances is the task of Jesus' servants. It's our task. And faithful discipleship is the center of gravity in Luke 19, verses 15 to 24. The nobleman returns as king, having received the kingdom. The time for consummating the kingdom has arrived, and the time for evaluation has come for the servants entrusted with the minas. Ten servants were given a mina, but the parable focuses on only three. Three disciples that represent all disciples. And these disciples fall into one of two camps, those who are faithful and those who are unfaithful. The king evaluates his servants. He assesses what they've gained by putting their mina to work. Now, this talk of gain suggests that the king is looking for a profit from his servants' work. But this is not the case. Riffing off the command to engage in business in verse 13, the king assesses whether his disciples have faithfully engaged in business in verse 15. The first two servants called by the king are exemplars of faithful discipleship. The first made ten minas more, while the second made five minas. Now, this might be grounds for boasting. This is the perfect opportunity for self-promotion. Lord, look at what I did. Look at my work. Look at how useful I am to your service. But the first two servants don't use their work as an opportunity for self-promotion. In fact, these servants don't even mention themselves. Did you catch their responses? The first says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And the second says, Lord, your mina 
has made five more. Your mina, your gift, Lord, your gift produced more. This is faithful discipleship. It's not about the disciple. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's about the Lord's gracious gift. It's about faithfulness to the Lord and putting that gift to work. The work is the issue, not the results. But the work yields results, and these results are rewarded. The king evaluates the first servant as faithful and implicitly assesses the second as faithful. And he rewards their faithfulness by granting them authority over cities. Now, this is astonishing. It's totally out of proportion with the work. In the broad scheme of things, these disciples make a meager profit with a meager gift that they put to work. And in exchange, they receive authority over multiple cities? What? Why? Because they've proven to be faithful. Because the king is gracious and generous. And because, as Jesus says in Luke 16, verse 10, one who is faithful in very little, faithful in very little, is also faithful in much. So much is given because of the faithful discipleship of these servants. But things are different with the final servant. This servant turns the tables. You see, he does not wait for the king's evaluation. He evaluates the king. And this evaluation is shocking. The final servant claims that the king is severe, taking what he did not deposit and reaping what he did not sow. This servant is afraid of the king. And out of fear, he simply puts the king's mina in a handkerchief. This servant has been careless with the king's gift, careless with the gift of the gospel. His testimony indicates that he does not know the king. Nothing in the parable justifies this servant's evaluation of the king's character. He gets the king wrong. He gets the king's character wrong. And he gets discipleship wrong. He's unfaithful, wicked, disobedient. And this is clear through the king's response. The issue is not, it's not that this unfaithful disciple failed to earn a profit with the king's gift. The issue is that this unfaithful disciple failed to put the king's mina to work. He did not engage in business, even in the most menial form of business, in depositing the mina in a bank. He did nothing. He has nothing to show for the work. He disobeyed the king's command. So the king rebukes the servant publicly, and the king takes away the unfaithful servant's mina. Why? Verse 26, because to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
This is a harsh evaluation. But notice what the king does not do. In contrast to the citizens in verse 27, to those enemies of the king who did not want him to reign over them, the king does not judge this unfaithful servant. The disobedient disciple is not judged along with the enemies of the king. And this is scandalous. The king's refusal to judge the disobedient disciple along with the citizens indicates that this disciple's evaluation of the king's character is dead wrong. King is not severe. He is gracious and merciful. He graciously gives the gift of the gospel to his disciples. He graciously gives undeserved gifts to faithful disciples who obediently engage in his work. And he graciously refrains from judging this unfaithful disciple at his return. That's grace, folks. The disobedient disciple gets the king's character wrong. Perhaps that's not surprising. Jesus' own disciples get him wrong. He is not the king they expect. We even get Jesus wrong. It's a comforting thought that unfaithful disciples, that those who get Jesus wrong, receive grace. Jesus freely gives it even to those disciples who get him wrong. So what happens to this disobedient disciple? Is he judged in some other way? Or does he match Paul's description of one whose work is burned up, though that person is saved as through fire? I don't know. The parable doesn't say. It's not the point. The point is that this disobedient serves as a cautionary tale, as a warning, motivating us to a life of faithful discipleship before the evaluation of our king. Friends, we don't get to define Jesus' character, Jesus' kingship, and the nature of his kingdom. He does. What he calls us to is very simple. Faithful discipleship. No extraordinary gifts are required. No superhuman strength is necessary. Just faithfulness. Just obediently putting to work the gift of the gospel that God in Christ by the Spirit has given to all. To all of his people. How we put the gift of the gospel to work says less about us, says less about our abilities. How we put the gift of the gospel to work in faithful discipleship says everything about our understanding of and our relationship to our king. Those who live a life of grateful and faithful discipleship put the gift of the gospel to work and acknowledge your mina. Your gift, Lord, did the work. 
Those who fail to live a life of grateful and faithful discipleship refuse to put the gift of God to work. They cover the light of the gospel. They're ashamed of the gospel. They're embarrassed of their king. They get him wrong. They get discipleship wrong. And those who refuse to serve Jesus are judged because they will not allow him to reign over them. Who are you in this parable? Are you a faithful disciple? Are you a disobedient disciple? Are you a citizen, an enemy of the king? Whichever way we cut it, we are in this parable. This story as is our story as we live in the meantime, between the times of Jesus' first and second comings. So how would you evaluate yourself in the meantime? Try this. After church, ask a family member or a friend to evaluate your discipleship. If you're a Christian, ask a family member, a friend, to evaluate your discipleship, to assess how you're putting the gift of the gospel to work in your life. And if you're not a Christian, ask a family member or a friend in this church, someone sitting next to you, to evaluate your life. After all, evaluation is inevitable. And the evaluation of our gracious King matters. It has eternal consequences. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that you are gracious and merciful in trusting the gift of the gospel to servants like us. And Lord, we pray in your Son and by the power of your Spirit, you would enable us to faithfully put the gift of the gospel to work in our lives, in the places where you send us. We pray that you would make us servants who are faithful, servants who are unashamed. For those of us who might be disobedient disciples, we pray that in your mercy, you would draw us back, that you would enable us to respond to your grace and mercy by faithfully putting the deposit you've entrusted us to work for your glory. In Jesus' sake, amen.